listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you people, I haven't had a stand-up comic on for a while, and this is great, because, well, he's also an actor, and he's a podcaster, and he has a ton of stuff going on, and he's a comic first at heart, because I know that's how every comic is. They start doing comedy, and they love it. When I did comedy, I loved it. I got out of the business, but I would I started as a comic, and you had that certain love for comedy that if something leads from it, it's fine, but you would rather be on the road than doing other things. And my guest is John Reap. How you doing, John? I'm doing great. How are you? Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, I got to ask you, you know, you're a comic who's, who works a lot. What has it been like? Have you been getting withdrawals? I mean, and when it started in March, what was your yeah. frame of mind? You thought you might miss a month on the road? Or what was yeah. going through? Well, yeah, it, uh, like you're right. It started in March. And uh, uh, my agent actually texted me because I had a lot of meetings set up in Los Angeles. I, I moved out of L.A. about two years ago. And uh, so now I live in Hickory, North Carolina. And uh, I was going to take a trip back out to L.A. for a lot of meetings. And he goes, hey, I don't know if you're aware, but this this virus is getting pretty serious, at least in L.A. Uh, uh, all your meetings are getting postponed, rescheduled. I'm like, okay, cool. And I thought, yeah, well, this will blow over in about a month or two. And then here we are, 2021. And, um, you know, it's tough. A lot of a lot of gigs, definitely I've lost about 80% of my gigs. Um, I did manage to go to a couple. Uh, Florida was the one state that was like, we don't care. Just get on down here. And so I did Florida, did Tampa. And I just recently came back. I was in uh, Nashville for New Year's Eve. So I've done probably about five or seven gigs the whole year. And uh, normally I'm, I was doing a gig almost every weekend in another city somewhere. Now, what does that do to your being on stage? As you, as you know, and you know because you've done comedy, and I know when I did comedy, when you go on the road and you hit it out for like five or six nights in a row, you do nine shows, you got tight. And even that week, yeah. even if you went in feeling a little flabby that week, by Thursday you'd be kicking ass. What yeah. is it like for you when you weren't on stage for a while, but then all of a sudden you're going back? Did you have a little bit of jitters in you going, shit, I might forget my act? Or what was going through your mind? 100% yes. I mean, I remember that first gig back in Tampa. I had already had off um, a couple of months without doing stand-up. And it's repetitions. The, the, you really need stage time to keep to keep sharp. And so when I went to Tampa, I remember sitting in the green room, and I thought, okay, let me create a little cheat sheet for myself. And I don't, you know, normally do that. So I was sitting here trying to think of, like, what my set list was going to be. And I remember panicking because not only was I kind of forgetting some of my bits, I was forgetting what I called them, <laughs> you know, like the title <laughs> of the bit. I'm like, oh, my God, this, this just got serious. So I, I brainstormed as good as I could. I made a little cheat seat. And I took it up there with me, and I told the crowd, I'm like, look, it, you're the first show I've done in months, so this is going to be rusty. Um, the good thing I've noticed in doing the shows I've done is the crowds seem to be very forgiving. They seem to be like, we understand. It's a messed up time. We're just happy to be out of the house. We just like you. Just do whatever, and we're going to be fine. And so I've had that experience so far. 
what has your timing been like and your prou- your stage prowess? Because, you know, you all, you control the stage, whether if you stand there or if you walk, you have that control. And it's like anything. If you don't do it for a long time, you get atrophy. What, have, what, what has your stage presence been like and what has your joke timing been like? Because you're hearing laughs for the first time in a long area. Yeah. Uh, that hasn't changed a whole lot. I mean, it's kind of like muscle memory too. And then once you get up there and your body and your brain sort of remembers what it was like and, and, the, and just sort of like the adrenaline rush that comes over you if in front of being in front of people, um, sometimes that nervous energy will force comedy out of you. And uh, that's kind of been that way my whole career in a weird way. But um, that part hasn't changed a whole lot. Uh, once I get one laugh, my confidence comes back and I feel safe and secure. And, and you know, the, the, the places I've been, I've been going to for years. And so I've got a, a little following of the same people that I see all the time. And, and they're just, like I said, happy to be out. And so I'll just do crowd work if I forget something. And here's a good here, – this will be an interesting sort of a nugget for your listeners. If they ever come to see me at a comedy show and uh, – during the middle of a bit, if I stop and I just go, any questions? That means I've totally forgotten <laughs> my jokes, and now I'm just relying on the crowd to ask me a question so I can sort of riff. Now, how about when it comes to writing? Because, you know, writing, you, you go on stage, and it's like anything. You're having a great set, and you'll you'll pop in a new bit. You know, you'll do it like two minutes. You'll, be, you'll have 20 minutes, you're kicking ass. You go, well, I'm going to do two minutes of new stuff. And so you can see if it works. How has it been for you writing where you can't try it out on stage or are you, are you at the point in your career, which you pretty much know if you write something, it's going to be funny. I never know if I'm going to write something, if it's going to be funny. Um, but what I, what, what has changed is that you can't avoid what's going on with politics and pandemics going on. So, so in a weird way, I feel like I have to address it up front to get, to just get it over with and so in that aspect, you know, I normally put newer material in the middle of the set in case it doesn't do well. You know, I've already made them laugh, and at least I know I can make them laugh at the end. So, so I put it in the middle. But what has changed is now I'm putting it in the front um, because I feel like it's it's current, it's in the news, and I have to address it immediately. Um, and I've been lucky with that as well, so – I think people are, um, like I said, forgiving, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess, uh, I, in a weird way, the more I do this, the more and more I have to just trust myself and go like, "Look, I just gotta throw it out there. If it doesn't work, just move on to something else." So, yeah, that's changed. I put it in the front now instead of the middle. Now, what is your view on doing political humor? You know, some people stay completely away from it because they feel a lot of crowds are 50-50. And the bottom line is that people came to see you. They didn't come to hear your, they came to see you laugh. But if you do political, sometimes you're going to alienate 50% of the crowd and then they're going to walk away going, oh, that sucked. He made it. What is what is your view on political humor? It's that. I, I, I don't want to alienate the crowd. I try to stay away from it. Um, I have enough uh, going on in my life with my with my family and and, and just my friends and everything else, my history, that I don't even need to go there, really. Um, plus, I don't think I'm uh, educated enough to have an informed opinion about it. And I, I hope people admire me about that. Like, I, I hate watching a comedian go off on a political rant, and they don't even have the facts right. So, And I'm, a, I'm so afraid of that 
that I don't really address it. And it boils down to like, you know, Jay Leno, I think is a guy who said this. He's like, you pick a side, you lose half your crowd. And I am not, uh, at the level of where I can afford to lose half the crowd. I'm still trying to gain people. So, yeah, I don't mess with it. Now, what were you like as a kid? You know, everyone has, you know, it's so funny, and you you do comedy, and we all know a lot of comics, and, and everyone has, like, they always think, oh, this person's a class clown, but a lot of comics were introverted. What were you look, like? As, a, as like, were you a funny kid, or did you know you wanted to do comedy when you were young? Yeah, my dad, so I was a class clown. I got that little senior superlative my high school senior year. Um, my dad got it when he was in high school as a kid, and then my brother got it after me. So I don't know if it's uh, in the blood. I think maybe it is. My dad was definitely the the inspiration. He was a funny one, and I uh, he would he was a funny one with his group of friends. So as a kid, I'd sit back and watch my dad hang out with his peers and his his friends and make them laugh, and I remember just loving that. And I remember him watching, you know, uh, late night shows and comedy on TV and laughing. And, and all I wanted to do was be able to be that good to make my own dad laugh. And I think that just rubbed off on me and it stuck ever since then. Now, my brother is also funny, but he's a different kind of funny. My brother's very shy and very introverted, um, but he's pretty smart and he's good at like a tag or a one-liner, or or an idea for me even. So growing up, uh, I was a class clown that would be at a party, and I would be uh, on a table uh, making people laugh, doing something stupid, putting a lampshade on my head, and my brother would come over and tap me on the leg and be like, um, now pull your pants down. <laughs> something stupid to add to it. I'd be like, oh, yeah, genius. I'm doing that now. I didn't even think of that. So so it's little stuff like that. It's different. But, yeah, I think it uh, – I definitely got it from my dad. And I was a class clown. Third grade teacher told my parents, you got to take this kid to Hollywood immediately. And, of course, when you grow up in Hickory, North Carolina, doing anything in the entertainment field, especially – the time I grew up, it's changed, but uh, that's just not a possibility. It's like you got to get out of here to make that start. So I didn't even take comedy as a serious thing or an option in my life until I moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, um, and that was in 1992. And I was born in 1972, so it took me 20 years to even think of like, oh, hell, you can make a living at this? Now, you went to Raleigh because you went to NC State, right? Y- yeah. Okay, so you go there, and your degree, your major, is it in theater? Yeah, theater, mass communication, public, interpersonal. It's all sort of falls under one umbrella. I got like three concentrations under one what bachelor you, arts degree. What pushed you in that direction? Just because you're <laughs> earlier, I mean, or just you said it's going to be easier. What pushed you in that direction? I, I absolutely love this question because I love telling the story. Um, so I barely got into NC State. Um, I was going to a community college in Hickory for two years, sitting around in the break room with my friends, skipping class for no reason, uh, classes that I paid for. And I remember at one point, uh, my buddy goes, uh, we need to get out of here. You know, we can go to NC State. I'm like, my grades aren't good enough to go to NC State. He goes, well, there is a back door way we could get in. I'm like, do tell. And back in the day, I don't think they do this anymore. There was a thing called the lifelong education program and NC state would allow anyone 
to uh, take two classes and a PE. And if you do well, they might admit you as a full-time student. And so I talked my parents into funding this, and I went to Raleigh with uh, two of my buddies, and uh, it took me about, oh gosh, it took me about a year to finally get admitted as a full-time student. And when I got in as a student, I had to pick a major. Like once you were a full-time student, you got to pick something as your major. And I'm like, wow, I don't know what to do. It was hard getting in. What, what's, what's a major that's easy? All I was thinking is what is the easiest major? Because I just wanted a degree. My dad had drilled into my brain, get a degree. Did, I don't care what it is. Just get a degree. I'm like, all right. So now I'm there. I got to pick a degree. And I'm thinking, all right, what's the easiest? Now, I used to be – I mean, I played football in high school. I, I know athletes, and they're not always the brightest people. And so I'm thinking, well, what are the athletes taking? They're usually pretty dumb like me. I'll, I'll, I'll do something in that. And I looked around, and they were all taking communication. I go, oh, yeah, I'll take communication. And then I took a theater class. And when I took a theater class, I found out that I was pretty good at acting. I had no idea. I wasn't a theater kid in high school. I played football. I was a, a funny dude who, who played sports. Um, and, now I, and now I'm a theater guy. And uh, I took a class. And I did well. And all the other students were like, wow, that was good. I want to do a scene with that guy. And then I just got pushed in that direction, you know, uh, because I was uh, good at it. I was getting praise at it. And so I chose theater and communication as my major, not thinking that it would turn into what it turned into. I just wanted a degree. And, and then later I found out there's a comedy club next to the campus. And it just sort of snowballed from there. Now, were you in college when you first got on stage, or were you out already? I was, oh, that's a good question. I think I was about, uh, no, I was still in college. I mean, it's right there at that timeline where I was just about to graduate, but I was still in college. I had done a uh, co-op uh, for one semester to where I was working about getting credit for it at a uh, <laughs> Holiday Inn Worldwide Reservation Center. So I had time at night to go do stand-up, and I started taking classes. There was a uh, um, a guy teaching a comedy class in Raleigh, and I remember going there thinking, man, I don't want to take a stupid comedy class. You don't have to teach me how to be funny. You know, I got class clown in high school. I know how to be funny. That's <laughs> dumb. But I'm glad I took it because it was more about the mechanics punchline setups, move the microphone, stand out of the way, little things like that. Um, and of course, that also leads to connections. And so it's all about the connections. You know, once you get in the, you get in the world and you do well and you meet this guy and he thinks you're funny and then this guy tells, t talks to you about this guy. And before you know it, there's a little circuit. And um, that's how it started. I had no idea that it would turn into this. Now, how did you do on your first night? Because, you know, you get either people, you know, it's funny. Like, my first time I ever did comedy, I went up and I kicked ass. And I got cocky. Because we all get cocky. You have a good set. Like, oh, I should be I should be featuring after, like, one night. I have 30 minutes, you know. And you go up. And my second night, I fell flat on my face. Died. And I didn't come back for, like, two months. until I Because you, like you felt like a dick. You know, you just felt awful. What was it like? What was your first time on stage like? Yeah, no, I've heard the curse of killing the first time. I know other comedians have told me this story where they 
the first time up they killed and they felt like this is going to be easy and they get all excited. They go back again. They fail. They go back again. They fail. They can't figure out like what, why can I get that first experience back? I didn't have that experience. I did mediocre. I had uh, a buddy who thought I was very funny and I had been talking about doing stand up for a while and he finally got tired of me uh, talking about it, not doing it. And he said, you need to do this or stop talking about it because it's getting old. And I said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Tuesday night, open mic at good nights. He comes up from Charlotte to, to witness this, brings a camera. Actually, there is my first time is on camera somewhere, but I don't know where this tape is. Uh, Marty Coulter, if he's listening, he might know where it is. Um, so Marty came to film it. You know, it was like a Tuesday night, 20 people in the crowd first time i'm scared i've been working out my little set in my head i only had to do like five to seven minutes um but i remember trying to go over my jokes and um the mc that night said before he brought me up which i didn't like that he did this he said okay everybody this next guy on stage it's his first time so everyone be nice and i'm thinking don't tell him that that made me mad at him and it also made the ner- the crowd nervous for me in a weird way or they're going to be more brutal i mean it, it's not good information to give the crowd and so i'm like oh damn and so i i ran on stage and i felt like back then it would be funny and i still think it's kind of funny uh just just to fall down like i like a good pratt fall and uh, I was very physical back in the day. I was a big Chris Farley fan and all that stuff. And so I ran on stage and I busted my butt. I fell down hard on purpose. But the crowd, I mean, my fall was so good that the crowd didn't think that it was a joke. They thought I fell down. And because it was my first time, they felt sorry for me. So when I got up to deliver my jokes, I was expecting laughter. And then I got, ooh. Oh no. Oh no, it's his first time. You know, I'm like, no, I did it on pur- Ah! And then I got frustrated and I started doing my set. And I didn't know this before I took the class that you had to put the microphone right on your chin. And so I'm talking like this. I'm talking. The sound would come and go. But I got enough laughter in those five minutes to, to give me confidence to come back and make it better. I knew I could improve it. And my buddy Marty. And I wish this tape existed. I know it does. I wish I had access to it. Uh, Marty thought everything I said was funny. And I already tried these jokes out on him. So as I'm telling the jokes, if you watch this tape, I'll, de- I'll deliver a joke. The crowd won't laugh. But the camera shakes up and down. And you hear, <laughs> you hear my buddy, I'm killing Marty. But everyone else is like, I can't hear it. What, is, was that, what did he say? <laughs> no. But I, like I said, in the five minutes, I'm about two and a half were good. And I thought, like, that's just enough to get me to try it again. And I kept going and I kept going and I just kept getting better at it. Now, of course, I had those days where nothing worked. But but, I, but because that first time was, was decent enough, I knew I could I, I knew I could get there again if I just kept going. Now, when you were starting out, was Creative still a big? Did they still have a bunch of comedy clubs like Creative with Brad Greenberg? Did they still have yeah, a bunch. Uh, yeah, so I started in Raleigh. Raleigh was Good uh, Good Nights Comedy Club. Um, uh, uh, that was Tommy. Oh God, what was his last name? Tommy owned that one. So Creative and Tommy had two. There were two separate things. But I eventually got in with uh, Comedy Zone. That was Greenberg, and they had their own 
uh, creative agency, and there were comedy zones. It still are comedy zones all over the South. Um, but the hub was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte's about two and a half hours outside of Raleigh. Um, and there was a stupid rivalry where Raleigh comics thought they were better than Charlotte comics when really we all sucked. <laughs> <laughs> now, how long till you started getting out and working? You know, how long till you started breaking up as an opener and then breaking into an MC? Because I mean, to a feature. Because people have different things. Like like Roy Wood. Roy Wood, when he started, would go anywhere. He would go anywhere for two hundred fifty dollars. He didn't give a shit. He'd get on yes. a bus if he had a room. He wouldn't care. He'd go to the club. He'd eat that. Left side of the menu or whatever. Sure. Some people wouldn't go on the road. Like in the Philadelphia area, people didn't want to go on the road until they were a feature because a lot of the clubs from Virginia up, you didn't get a room if you were an MC. So you, didn't, you weren't going to sit there and drive two and a half hours for 50 bucks back then and come back. How long did you immediately hit the road or did you take a while and wait till you became a feature? I waited till I became a feature. I would do. Uh, things to where I could drive to it and then get back that night. Uh, if it were if it were a gig outside of Good Nights Comedy Club, I would make sure that I would that it was drivable there and back, so I could be in my own bed and not pay for a room. Uh, but uh, I and I did that long enough to where I I got to be a pretty good feature, and then when I started featuring, you know, then they pay for the room. Now that's changed. Uh, that doesn't really happen that much anymore and i feel bad for comedians starting today because there's really not a whole lot of feature work anymore um especially during the pandemic of course a lot of clubs don't want to pay for the room for the feature so what they end up doing is just getting local guys to go up they'll just use two or three local guys and and, and, and they, don't, they don't have to pay for room it's less money and then the headliner is the only one that has a room so i got lucky that i started when i did because i was able to tour all over the country as a feature act and not have to pay for the hotel room. Now I did, um, you know, live off my credit card cause you can't make any money. It really is as, as a feature act. Um, but I made it just enough to where I could like, I'm going to keep doing this and see where it goes. Um, now I had, I was young enough and dumb enough to not care about what happened with my credit. <laughs> but at some point I was like, oh man, this is piling up. But yeah, it, it, uh, it turned out to be okay. Now, who were, who were some of the headliners when you were on the road? Who were some of the guys? Because you probably played the, the, the circuit, you know, as you said, creative and stuff like that. Who, who were some of the guys that were headlining that you were looking to say, you know what, he's a nice guy, but I want to blow his ass off the stage? Well, I always wanted to blow their ass off stage. Um, that's just that's just the gene inside of comedians, I think, is they want to be the best one that night. Um, but I never, ever wanted to do it in a mean way. I just wanted to prove that like I could do this if I wanted to. Now, I will tell you, the first headliner that I saw to where I was intimidated and inspired at the same time was Brian Regan. Okay. Brian Regan came to Good Nights, and we all know now he's like the GOAT almost, really. He's one of the best. And But early on, I'd, I'd never heard of him. He came in that room, and for an hour, I literally had my hand up like this, begging him to stop talking so I could <laughs> breathe. Like, I couldn't breathe. It was so funny. And and that night, I'm like, I will never be this good. I shouldn't even do this. But then I remember going like, well, if I get half that good, 
I can have a career. And so it was, uh, I, I've been trying to, to be a Southern sort of, uh, Brian Regan mixed with Steve Martin, mixed with Andy Griffith, all this whole career I've been doing. Now I want to talk more about your comedy career and your acting, but I want to, I want to hear about the, uh, Carolina Panthers football game. Yeah. Yeah. So that was another thing that inspired me. Um, I was going to school, NC State. Uh, the Panthers came into the NFL in 1996, and I was very excited that we finally got our own football team. I go to a Carolina Panthers game with a bunch of my friends, and we're in the cheap seats. And every time out, they would play music, and I'd get up in my seat and just start dancing around. Like I said, I was pretty physical back in the day, and I would just start dancing around to make my friends laugh. And each time out, the crowd of people laughing at me would get bigger and bigger. And so finally, by the third quarter, I'm on this grass hill behind the goalpost. My buddy Marty, the same guy that came to film me in uh, Raleigh, was like, dude, you got to get on the grass hill behind the goalpost so the whole stadium can see your ass. I'm like, that's a genius move. I'm going to do that. I get down on this grass hill behind the goalpost. And by the way, this is this is before the Carolina Panthers had their stadium built. This was the they, they, the first year they played their home games in Clemson, South Carolina. And they have, just back in the day, they had these grass hills behind the goalposts. It wasn't seating. Like, it was just a, a hill, and anybody could go wander over there and stand or sit there. So, But now the whole stadium is focused on me. They can see me. And I'm dancing, and they're playing music for 10 minutes straight while this guy was hurt, and they're working on this guy. And the mascot of the Carolina Panthers, Sir Purr, that's his name. Sir Purr comes over to where I'm dancing and waves me out onto the field to dance with him. And before I can say yes or no, my friends throw me over the fence. I I'm, I fall down. I get up. I start break dancing. Crowd's going nuts. And I thought, well, I used to I used to break dance. I'll give up the worm. So I, I'm on the ground and now I'm doing the worm. And all the cheers turn to boos. And I'm thinking, wow, they don't like the worm, but they're not booing me. They're booing the cops who are running out onto the field behind me to arrest me because they didn't they didn't see Sir Purr's invitation. See, the cops at a football game, they're looking at the crowd. They're not looking at the field so much. So all they heard was a bunch of people clapping and cheering, and they turned around. They just saw me doing the worm. So they run out to arrest me, but the crowd's booing them, and they waited. These cops, they waited for my butt to get to the peak of the worm like the apex and they come up out of nowhere and it was like a full-on wedgie like they got me good and i was one minute this is like, like 22 years old this is the best thing i've done in my life and this and the next minute i'm on my tippy toes you know with a camel toe in my butt crack and i'm telling them hey sir purr said it was cool and then we all argued for a minute and uh we found out in that moment that sir purr does not have the authority to invite people onto the field and so, you know, we were all, it was a rookie season for everybody, not just me or the Panthers, but also the mascot. So you're back, you're doing comedy. I want to go back to comedy. I, I read that story. I had to hear it. Um, so you're doing comedy. When do, when do you start making strides where you sit there and go, you know what, I'm, this is going to, I have, I'm good at this. I mean, how long did it take you to start headlining? Ooh, um, well, I think there's little tiny levels that, that happen each time uh, uh, over your career as a comedian i think you know the first one is just getting one laugh and then when you get that one laugh over a joke that you wrote you're like Ooh, this is a very addictive feeling so that's like one level and then like there's another level where you do an improv something you didn't even write 
and now that's funny and you're like oh my gosh I just made that up in front of people I'm a genius so that's another level then there's like another level where you could be in the moment delivering a joke and the crowd's loving it and simultaneously you're the other half of your brain is wondering, well, what bit should I do next? They seem to like this one. Well, maybe I'll do this after that. But while you're in the moment, it's amazing how your brain can, can learn that ability over the years. So so those are like the three little levels. And then like, I mean, I was getting really good as, as a, 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 a in-house MC, growing into a feature. The crowds are loving it. I'm getting better at it. Headliners are having trouble following me. I start doing feature work all over the country. And then uh, a friend of mine asked me, are you not doing college gigs? Because you would be perfect for the college market. And I go, no, uh, I don't know anything about it. And her name was Retta. Retta is a comedian on Parks and Recreation. I don't know if you've seen her, but like, she's great. She said, you, sh- you should have a college agent. And I got a college agent thanks to her. And uh, the good thing about doing the college circuit is that there are no agents or managers or comedy club owners or no one in that world is at the shows. It's just college kids. So if you don't do well, no one's going to know. And you can also take risks um, because who cares? You know, as long as you are funny for like 30 to 40 minutes, these kids don't care if you did an hour and a half, if you did 30, or if you bombed for 10 minutes. Not, this is like this is before Facebook and all that stuff. So I turned myself into a headliner by doing tons of college gigs. And I'd lied to them. I told them, like, yes, I have an hour of material. They go, great. I didn't. I had maybe 35. <laughs> but in, in the course of doing these gigs, I had to learn to come up with – uh, new jokes, new material, and be spontaneous and and uh, do crowd work, and I think that's what turned me into a headliner. Was doing college gigs for about two years, and I kind of stopped doing clubs for a minute. Now, when did you start getting on TV? You know, we know I want to talk about last comic standing, but before that, what was what was your parlay into TV? Did you move to LA or New York and then start doing it, or how long did you did you hang in North Carolina? I was in North Carolina, so I started uh, at Good Nights in 96, and um, and I got invited to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival in 99-2000, and so I'm thinking, well, maybe this is my time to uh, make the move to Los Angeles. Um, the guys that I started comedy with at Good Nights, uh, one of them was Jeff Richards, who was also on SNL. Like he got, He was one of the most successful guys out of our core of people that when I started – because uh, he got on Mad TV and Saturday Night Live. Like he, he first he was Mad Mad TV, then he went to SNL. But and I'm thinking, all right. So I got a friend who already lives in uh, Los Angeles, and so when I got invited to the uh, Montreal Just for Laughs festival, I said, Jeff, can I come stay with you after this festival? I'm going to want to take meetings and all this kind of stuff. And he said, Yeah. And I just kind of stayed out there. <laughs> So I moved to Los Angeles. I did not move to New York. I visited New York. I did um, I did Dangerfields. I did uh, well, I did Carolines. I did Gotham. But uh, I never moved to New York. I went straight to Los Angeles. And my process, my thought process was, well, New York is great if I only want to be a comedian because there are lots of opportunities to go on stage and be seen and work on your craft. 
Um, but Los Angeles is you can be a comedian and, and there's lots of acting opportunities and the weather's a little nicer and I'm further away from my parents. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what was the process for you to get on Last Comic Standing? Was it a, was it a lengthy process, or was it who was your manager or agent at the time? Uh, at the time, it was well. The the agent was T.J. Mark Walter, and he had been hitting me up every year that Last Comic Standing. See, I was on season five, uh, two thousand seven. So by two thousand seven, I had already been in L.A. seven years. I had already done a series of truck commercials for Dodge Trucks. I had already been on Comedy Central Presents. I was already on a sitcom called Rodney on uh, ABC for a little bit. And so I didn't really uh, need uh, to go on Last Comic Standing. I wasn't looking at it as an opportunity. I was just thinking, like, well, that's like a contest for new people. And I didn't like the reality show part of it. I remember sitting at home watching it. And the comics are great, but I remember watching them do well uh, on TV, on a primetime network television show, and that audience is huge. And I remember watching them do well, and then looking right into the camera when they're done, and going, please vote for me. <laughs> like, I hated that part of it. It looked so desperate and needy. So I always said no. And TJ would always call me every year, do you want to go audition for Last Comic Standing? I, I know the people who are, are doing it in, at the improv. You're not going to have to wait in line. I can get you an audition time if you want to go. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. So I passed on the audition for a while. And then finally, he calls me the season where he basically talked me into it. He said, all right, look, this year, um, you're not going to have to live in a house with any other comedians. Okay. So there's not that reality side of it. Everyone's going to get their own hotel rooms. Um, you don't have to wait in line. Uh, they're going to get road-tested headliners, guys who can actually do an hour if they end up winning and have to tour, who can actually do an hour. And the prize money is going to go up from 50000 to 250000 I go, okay, well, I'll go down there. <laughs> so I went down there thinking that I would be the token redneck and that they would be, you know, make fun of me and, and uh, it would be one, one episode. Um, but, but I just kept advancing. I, and again, I didn't know that I would end up winning the whole thing. I just thought, well, let me give it a shot. So I'll, thanks, TJ, Mark Walter, if you're watching this. What is it like, man, when you when you won, when you finally won, when you know you're getting 250000 now given probably agent, manager, taxes, you're getting about 150000 But uh, what was it like when you heard your name? Did you say, you know, because you, you were in those commercials, so you were making good money. I mean, commercials yeah. back then paid, not like now, not where they're all union. But back then, you know, and you were on a series of them, so you were doing well. It wasn't like you were starving and sitting there going, oh, should I, if I want to order avocado on a sandwich, I might not be able to afford it. What was it like there when they said, you know, here's this, you're getting a chunk yeah. of change? It was crazy. Um, I remember standing on stage, uh, Bill Bellamy was the host, and it came down to me and Lavelle Crawford. And Lavelle was very funny. He still is. I thought he was going to win. Because... Um, Lavelle, to me, is a triple threat uh, when it comes to comedy because he looks funny. Like, he's got this pointy head. He's got these big, bulging eyes, and he's a big dude. Um, so visually, that's funny. Uh, he sounds funny. Like, the way he talks. Man, his voice always up here. Like, you know, it's just like, he's got this voice that's funny. And then his material is actually funny. And I'm like, dang, this dude's 
he's going to be unstoppable. Um, and he was doing great in the room in Los Angeles, but he wasn't doing as great at homes across America. Um, and we didn't know that at the time. So I think everyone thought Lavelle was going to win, me included. But what my season, I got lucky because it wasn't just in America. This is the only season where it was also broadcast in Canada, Australia, and the UK. And so the whole world was kind of voting on this one. And I really thought, like I said, Lavelle's great. He's going to win. So I was prepared to hear, you know, Lavelle Crawford. And then Bill Bellamy said my name. And I was like, what? And then the confetti goes off and my mom and dad rush the stage. And before I know it, that's like, and I remember like, too, like if I do win, I'm going to do some redneck stuff because and I kind of got pigeonholed as that. And I still do. And it's fine. I've, I've learned to embrace it. But I thought like, if I win, I'm taking my shoes off. I'm taking my shirt off. And I'm going to start doing like a little hoedown d- dance uh, on stage. And I won. I'm like, oh, my God. And they made us wear jackets like blazers. And I'm not a blazer guy, especially on stage doing comedy. And that's okay if other people are. It's not me. So they made us wear blazers. And I thought, like, if I win, this blazer's coming off. And, it, they, and Bill Bellamy said, and the winner is John Reap. And I said, woo. And I took the blazer off. I threw it down. I took my shoes off. And I think my dad knows what I was doing. I didn't tell him what I was going to do. But I think it's like he knows his son. He got, he came on stage and he grabbed my shoulder. He goes, you won. Stop. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. And so, um, yeah, it was it was a crazy moment. How did that change your career? I mean, you know, people sit there, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the person who won the first season, it, it didn't really change their career that much. But, you know, I mean, they went out, but now they don't really tour as much. You know, other people who didn't win, like, you know, Jimmy Schubert, who's a friend who's brilliant. He didn't win, um, but he's, he's one of the best headliners out there. You know, he didn't win, so it didn't really affect him. You were already headlining stuff, but how did it affect your career? Did, did you, all of a sudden, did people want to call you for meetings? Because also because, as you said, you were the redneck. And, you know, yeah. how did that work? Well, you get um, the, the you get the money, right? And then you get, like, you have to go on tour uh, with the top five. So the top five get a tour bus, they tour all over the country. Um and there was like a, a part of the prize was also that you get a, a, a comedy special on the Bravo network. So all this stuff's going and I'm doing it. And of course there's meetings when you're hot, everyone wants to talk to you. And it was fresh off the heels of that. But luckily I had been doing stand up long enough that I already kind of had little patches of people, especially in the South who already liked me from the Dodge commercials from Rodney Carrington sitcom. And now on top of this, and it just, you know, because of Last Comic Standing, I'm still able to tour, you know, before a pandemic and, and headline uh, my whole career since then. Um, and, and I credit Last Comic Standing with that because before Last Comic Standing, people liked me. They felt like, oh, that Dodge Hemi guy, oh, that guy's funny. What's his name? They didn't know his name. Um, oh, that guy on Rodney sitcom. Oh, he's funny. I like him. What, who was that? But then... Last comic standing, every time I was on stage, behind me or at the bottom of the screen, it said John Reap. So the name was getting out there more as a comedian, not just a funny sort of character actor. So I credit Last Comic Standing with me being able to keep doing stand-up this whole time. 
Now, was there any animosity on the bus? Because the bottom line is you still won $250,000, and you guys are all making money doing the, the gigs, but you still are the guy who made $250,000. Is it like, pick up the check, man? Why, yeah. why should I? Because you just won oh, yeah. $250,000. Did you well, go through got, that? Yeah, I mean, I got roasted on that tour bus a little bit. Um, it was funny, too, because so right after I won, like I, the tour was supposed to start immediately. Uh, but I was already had a wedding planned. And so I was off in Hawaii doing the wedding and a honeymoon for two weeks while the tour was going on. And Lavelle Crawford, who came in second during the tour, was the headliner that whole time. So I come back from my honeymoon and I'm like, OK, uh, now I'm headlining and Lavelle goes. And the, you know, so it's, it was an ego uh, a hit to the ego for some of those guys. And, and, and uh, yeah, you're right. It's funny, like. The difference between first place and second place was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Uh, second place got nothing except for whatever you get on the tour, and so yeah, there was a lot of like, you know, that scallywag. You know, you better pick up a check. Yeah, definitely some of that. Now, with your acting, you know, you've been in different shows, and through your commercials and last that comic standing, have you gotten recognized a lot, or do people just think? Well, I don't know if that's him. It's a guy with, you know, as you know, your album's called, it's all about ginger. Yeah. But did people sit there, would they recognize you or would they think, I don't know, that guy's like dressed normal. Like, I mean, how do people react <laughs> to you? Oh, yeah. I get, uh, the funniest thing that happened with that, well, I remember one time I got on a plane and I'm going uh, through the aisle and a couple stops me, guy and a girl, husband and wife, and the, uh, the husband goes, hey, me guy. And the wife goes, no, what, honey? No, no, that's the guy from Last Comic Standing. He goes, what? What's Last Comic Standing? Honey, that's the hemi guy. And they were arguing with each other about two separate things that they were both correct about. So it's weird how some people have no idea about Last Comic Standing. They only know about the Dodge commercials or the opposite of that. Um, which is great. But yeah, I, uh, I will tell you the most humbling time though, because ever, uh, after getting recognized, especially last comic standing is a primetime network television show. And, and that audience is gigantic. Right. And so I remember this is embarrassing, but it's a funny story. I was doing a gig in Laughlin, Nevada. This is like right after, I think it was actually, yeah, no, it was before last comic standing was over because, you know, they would tour a little, I mean, the show would be in one city for a minute and then they'd have to go to another city. So like around, gosh, I think it was, I forgot what number episode it was, but I was in, let's say the top 10 uh, or the top five or something like that. And I hadn't won yet, but I had a two week break before I had to show up and do something else with last comic standing during that two week break. I did some shows. I went to Laughlin, Nevada. I don't know if you've been to Laughlin, Nevada, but it's like it's like Las Vegas. It's a nasty version of Vegas. I mean, it's it's all tobacco, desperation, a lot of older people who have nothing left and they're just putting money. And it's really white trashy down there, which is fine. Um, but I remember doing a show, and I'm like, I'm going straight to my room. I don't want to talk to anybody. Cause I was getting recognized a lot and now I'm walking down the hallway to my room and I see coming down the hallway towards me, a drunk lady who is pregnant 
and smoking a cigarette. And I just saw her down the hallway. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to talk to this girl. I put my head down. And I walk, I was thinking, hopefully she won't recognize me. And I'm walk, and I made that mistake of that last minute. I look up. That was a dumb move. And I look up at her. We make eye contact. And she goes, oh, look who it is. Oh, I guess you didn't win, huh? And I'm like, no, it's not over. I still have a chance to win. I'm in the top five. I need your vote. It's not over. She goes, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the jet skis are raffling off downstairs. You're up here. I guess you didn't win the jet ski. She had no idea what I was talking about. I went from up here to down here in two seconds flat. I'm like, that's the most humbling thing that's ever happened to me. Tell me, tell me more about your acting career. You know, you've been on different shows. I mean, do you, you know, what is, are you comfortable auditioning for shows because you have, you've been on stage so much? I mean, people, you know, that, being doing comedy is brings your skin up. I mean, for me, when I would occasionally audition for stuff, I'd always I shit the bed. To be That's honest, I, I just I would I would I wouldn't be myself. I would sit there. I would instead of just going and saying, "Hey, this," I'd be like, "I get all inside my head." But when you're on stage doing comedy, you don't get sided head. You just let it flow. Yeah, it's different. It's two different things, right? Like uh, stand up comedy is yours. It's you wrote it, you performed it. You know, it's your baby. Um, when you go to an audition, it's like someone else's stuff. You get one take, you know, and they're just filming you and they sit there very cold and they got their legs crossed or they're just not paying attention or they're just kind of paying. It's very, it's very intimidating. Auditioning is still, I mean, that's one of the hard, hardest things about uh, being an actor is the audition. And once you get the part and you're there and you show up, the director's usually nice, producers are nice, other actors are real nice and they just want everyone to do well. It's not like this, like, all right, prove it thing anymore because you've already done that in the audition. The audition is the hardest thing in acting. Um, and it took me a while to, to get comfortable. And I'm still not comfortable. I mean, I, I, I got kind of lucky in some of the stuff that I was able to, to – uh, the roles I've been able to get, I auditioned. Um, I was able to, like, they would call it put yourself on tape or just record yourself and, and send it in to them. And if they like it, maybe they'll have you in the second time. So uh, I was uh, able to do that with uh, Harold and Kumar, uh, with Eastbound and Down. Um, that usually got me in the door because I was on the road. You know, I was touring. So there were times where I couldn't make these auditions. And so I would be like, well, can I just record myself in my room and send it in or whatever? So some of that happened. But auditioning is never comfortable. It's the worst thing. And I'm still not good at it. Um and I know actors who are great at acting and they suck at auditioning. And and I know actors that are good at auditioning and not great at like staying in the character the whole time. So it's it's a whole other skill. And I wish I wish I could figure it out and was good at it. But like stand up, I think it's a, a repetition thing. The more auditions you get, the more you're in that room, the more you see these casting directors, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get, like anything else. And um it's tough. And well, the upside also is now everything's on tape. So you don't sit there. You don't have to go in. I mean, I know some actors who love going in the room, some actors who love doing a tape because before you would sit there, you'd lock yourself in a room and you go over, but here you can go back. And if you yeah. screw up, you can go back. So now, now you have your podcast. Now what made you decide to do a podcast? Well, I have uh, done podcasts before. Um, a buddy of mine, John Heffron, we started one a while back 
uh, John Hereford won last comic standing of season two, I believe. And, um, over time agents will just sort of lump all the winners of the last comic standing and create their own little tour. And that's how I met John. And, and, um, you know, he's like, we should do a podcast. Everyone's doing podcasts. So I feel like we should do one. So we started one and then we get lazy about it and we stop it. And so I did it a couple times. And then, um, when I knew that I was, uh, going to come back to Hickory to live, um, I was talking to Al Madrigal at All Things Comedy. And I'm like, Al, I know you got your own network here. Um, I want to start a podcast. And he goes, John, I'll be honest with you. A lot of comedians at your caliber have reached out to me, and they always want to do a podcast. They think it's going to be easy, and, and it's gonna, they're going to make a lot of money. And, it's, and, and, and over time, they get bored with it, and they stop. This is something that if you start this, I don't want you to stop. You just got to keep going and so al madrigal at all things comedy sort of like inspired me to to do uh to keep it going i actually came home and did a a tv pilot uh called hickory live and then the pandemic hit that that that's all those meetings i was going to take in march is about hickory live the tv pilot that i filmed here in hickory um and then slowly hickory live sort of morphed into country ish and now country ish, which started as an audio only podcast has turned into a live Facebook, YouTube, Twitter show. That's just sort of turned into more than just a podcast. So it's weird. It's kind of like the Hickory live TV show and the audio only podcast have merged into both of those things at the same time. Uh, and, and you know, it's, it's a great thing for me to do creatively here in the town I grew up in that it gets my creative juices out and it also, you know, you know, just you gain an audience and more people watch it and share it and people might forget about you. Go, oh, yeah, I like that guy. I'm going to go see him. Oh, he's performing at good nights. Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to go there. So I use it as a, a way to, a way to raise awareness for my stand up and any other projects I'm doing. And, and, and I can hang out with my friends and be funny and uh, not have to leave. I can stay here and be with my folks and my friends and, and, still get those uh, creative energy out. What made you move back to Hickory? I personally, I left LA three years ago and I moved back to New Jersey where I grew up and I was just tired of LA and I just saw LA going down and I knew buying something would be impossible because you know, what you can buy in LA for a box is in North Carolina. My friend just moved there is like a sprawling place is, is what made you move back? It was a combination of stuff. Um, you know, the industry's changed so much that, you know, you don't have to be in L.A. to um, audition all the time. You know, like I said, I got some some stuff from being on tape. Uh, as a comedian, it doesn't matter where you live. You still have to travel. And I'm thinking, I miss my family. I was really starting to miss my family. I have been gone out of Hickory since uh, 1992. You know, I went to Raleigh, then I went to L.A. I, I missed out on a bunch with just my family. And I, I started missing them. I started thinking, well, maybe I'll put my house on the market. I had a condo. It was you know, a nice condo paid for by Last Comic Standing and Dodge and Rodney Carrington sitcom. And I'm thinking, maybe I'll put it on the market. I'll put it on the market. I'll fix it up. If, it, if, if, if I get the price I want, that'll be a sign that I should bounce. And I started fixing it up. I put it on the market. 
and before it actually went to the whole MLS, like I think some agents can see it first. I got offers right away, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is a sign. And so I flew my dad out to Los Angeles. I said, I'm coming home. We drove all the way across the country with some of my stuff. I thought that would be a good father-son bonding moment. And then just to solidify that I should have come home, my dad has a stroke about two months later. And I'm like, well, that's a sign. So now my new per- – and then a pandemic happens. So now I, you know, my mom's never lived by herself. My dad is paralyzed on his left side. He lives in a skilled nursing facility, and that whole thing was a nightmare. My mom's never lived by herself. She's got brittle bones. She's got glaucoma. Um, so now that's like my new purpose is like staying home, focused on uh, taking care of mom, looking after dad when I can, still doing comedy as much as I can. And I'm able to do that because of this podcast. I don't have to go anywhere. I can come right here. And when I'm done with you, I'm going to go home and check on my mom. Um, and I love that. So it was a combination of things. I got very lucky with the timing of it. Well, timing also though in March didn't when when did uh, when did your album Ginger Pain come out? Was that in March of two nineteen? Oh, when was Ginger Pain? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I had already moved. Yeah, because on Ginger Pain, I told everybody I just moved back home. So that would have been. So I moved back two, two, three years ago. Uh, I don't. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly on the exact date, but I knew I had, when I recorded Ginger Pain, I had just moved back to North Carolina. Now, where did you record that? Did you do it over a few nights? Because some people do comic, comedy albums straight through. Now, like in the old days, they did it that way because there wasn't all the editing. Now it's changed. Where did you decide to record it? And was it was it a place a place that was uh, near and dear to you? Uh, well, it was at Charlotte, the Comedy Zone in Charlotte, and uh, they came and recorded uh, uh, one night, two shows, one night, and. Um, it was a 800 pound gorilla. That was a company who did it. And they just, you know, they said, Hey, we want to do a special with you. And I'm like, okay. And I'm so used to everyone wanting to do like, you know, cause I'm animated, you know, I, I'm physical that they would want, you know, video as well. So I was like blown away that they said, no, we're just going to do an album, just audio. I'm like, Oh, you're going to lose half, half the funniness. Um, but I am super proud of ginger pain. I think it's one of the funniest things I've done. And I love when people hear it and they listen to it and they don't know me and they're imagining what I'm doing, you know, during the bits. And people make up their own things in their head of what, what I might be doing during that, these jokes. Um, but that, yeah, that was in Charlotte. So I remember recording it and then driving home that night. <laughs> when, when you record an album now, is that material done for you? Or have you swept it under the rug or can you still use it because not everybody buys the album? Yeah, I don't. I, I hear these guys, and I, w- I wish I was that talented to be able to uh, abandon every single thing I've worked on for five years and start over. <laughs> like it, I'm not that good. So what I do is I try to put the new stuff in the middle, uh, and I will do you know towards the end. I try to give people what they want, you know. And I'm fortunate in in that aspect because a lot of comedians who uh, start from scratch, they're typically straight up joke tellers set up punch set up punch um and that if you've already heard a joke one time and you know what the punchline is it's not that great now but stories where you act things out and there's characters 
and people like the story and they can't tell the story because they forget certain parts of the story but they want someone to hear it they're like oh you gotta come see this guy he tells the story I can't do it right so they want to hear it again because they don't remember everything about the story they want to hear it again because jokes are different that way so I'm lucky in a weird way that I can keep telling some of these same stories over and over again because people want to hear them um but I'm also envious uh, of the straight-up joke writer. I wish I had that skill. Now, you had the album, and then you also have the, the Amazon special, Ginger, Ginger uh, Beard Man. When yeah. did they come out in accordance to each other? Oh, no, Ginger Beard Man was recorded in Chicago way before I came back home. Um, that was uh, my manager was like, all right, where we, uh, our other clients are doing specials. A guy dropped out, uh, and we have a slot. Would you like to fill that slot? So they already had the theater booked for like four of the comedians. Some guy wasn't able to make it. They asked me if I could do it. I said sure. I don't have any. I don't. I don't, I don't have a brand new hour of stuff, but I could sprinkle in uh, super old stuff, and then some new stuff. And they said we don't care. Just do it. So I recorded it, and I remember thinking, well, I think that was okay. Everyone said it was fine, and it sat on a shelf like no one bought it. It wasn't on Netflix. It wasn't on Comedy Central. It just sat on a shelf for a couple of years. And then finally, um, another – what was the company? Nacelle who bought – I don't know. They, uh, they bought up a – Comedy Dynamics bought up a bunch of specials, and then they sold it to Amazon. So Ginger Payne is newer than Ginger Beardman, even though Ginger Beardman came out, it's just been sitting on the shelf for a while. It's crazy, man. I know the guys at Comedy, uh, Brian Volkweiss over at Comedy Dynamics. He's really yeah. done a lot for comedy. You know, I, I, he did my show when I first started doing my podcast It was in, when I was in L.A. He was working for New Wave Entertainment, and it was right next door to where I recorded the studio. And I remember Brian was so young in... Uh, at yeah. that time and then just I've seen him on Facebook just blow up and he's done he's done a lot for comedy and people don't always see you know someone who does that is not taking the doesn't is not the person who's performing it shows they really really love stand up and that's great because a lot of people even club owners don't love stand up you know back in the day they all just it was yeah. slinging drinks and making money but as a comic that must be great to know that you're in someone like that stable yeah I got you know um Luckily, there are those people who are in the business who are still fans of comedy. Now, you get a lot of people who only see money and they and they don't care if it's uh, uh, funny. They just want, they just know it might work. But there are some people who go like, "No, that guy's good. He's not getting the credit, and I and I want to do something with him, even if it doesn't work the first five hundred times. I know it will work because I've seen him do do well. And those people exist." And thank God for those people. Uh, I've had a couple of them help me out through my career, and I appreciate them. So, what's the future for you? What, 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 what are your what are your goals these days? I mean, I mean, of course, they get out of the pandemic, but would you? I mean, would you forego going on the road a lot if you were to get a sitcom? Or what do you, what do you want now? Because you've 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 tasted success. You know, you won last comic standing. You won Rodney. You had a na- your national commercial. You've been on TV shows. You're a national headliner. It's a lot of stuff going on. You have a successful podcast. What 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 do you want from your career at this point of your age? And then what would you think you want 10 years from now? 
Wow, that's great. Like uh, a couple years ago, I would have said my own my own sitcom, you know. Um, but now it's like when I came here to Hickory and I, and I paired up with an a, a, a old friend of mine, Alan Jackson. Not that one, different guy. Um, he's like, we, we worked together and we did this uh, Hickory Live TV show. I'm thinking that would be great if I could make that work, my own TV show, shot and produced in the town I grew up in. And for that to be successful, that that's what I would want. Now, 10 years from now, who knows? I just want to keep – I just want to be able to keep making people laugh and afford enough uh, money to where I could stick around and take care of mom and dad and, and the rest of the family for as long as I can. But, yeah, we got to get over this pandemic first. You want you, you ever thinking? Would you ever move back to LA, or would you be the type that if you had it, it would have it would have to be. I would have to make sure that I had a show that was going to be on TV for a minute, you right. know, for me to move back there. Now I'm good. I have plans to visit. I have plans to go during pilot season. You know, devote my time to that world. I'm not abandoned acting, but this pandemic put the brakes on everything. So my plan was to during pilot season. You know, take a trip out to L.A., spend a month, um, you know, crash with friends, get hotel rooms, really focus on auditioning for pilots and doing stand-up at the comedy store and all that stuff, Um, and then coming back here and living and touring. But I still hope that that, that's what will happen, but who knows, man? Who who, who, who are you? We lose something. Who are your comedy buddies? Uh, My comedy buddies... um, well, Brent Blakeney, Dusty Slay, Reno Collier, Rodney Carrington, uh, Jeff Foxworthy's been on my podcast, Larry the Cable Guy. Um, a lot of them. I think, hey, I wonder if I lost signal here. Hang on one second. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm there. We're on- okay, all right. Now, I lost, a, I lost a camera, I think. But Oh, there we go. Here we go. Okay. Um, yeah, Alan had to take another meeting. So, all right. Uh, sorry about that. We're good. We're back on. But yeah, um, my buddies. Those are my buddies. And um, yeah, it's, I, I really hope to do some 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 creative stuff with those guys. I would love to do something with Dusty Reno. I mean, I talked to Rodney Carrington still on the phone. He, he moved back to Tulsa, uh, and he was doing amphitheaters and theaters and that kind of stuff. You know, he does really well in the Midwest and the South, all over the country, really. And uh, I would love to work with those guys again in some capacity. Well, that's awesome, John. I want to thank you for taking the time. Your website is johnreep.com. Uh, what is that all? Everything's on there? And what's your everything Twitter? Is, uh, everything is on there. If they want to check out the podcast, you can go straight to countryish.com. That's just the word country in the I-S-H countryish.com we got old episodes we got new episodes uh ways to subscribe and watch it on youtube and all that jazz so uh yeah um johnreap.com also countryish check it out people check john out also go to my website coopertalk.net you can find over 830 episodes on there email me cooper at coopertalk.net twitter i'm at coopertalk instagram at coopertalk1 remember i'm steve cooper i'm only as hip as my guests don't forget drink your water Eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.